Hi, and welcome to Global Governance Futures, based out of the UCL Global Governance Institute. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. Just to forewarn you that we did experience some technical problems with the sound in this episode, we hope that you will still enjoy this conversation. I'm really delighted to welcome Dr. Patrick Ophels to the podcast today. Patrick writes under the pen name William Ophels. I was recently given a copy of his 2013 book, Plato's Revenge, Politics in the Age of Ecology. And frankly, I think it is a classic of the genre. What genre that would be may be up for debate, cutting across as it does ecology, physics, complex system science, Western philosophical thought, and other fields besides. And this formidable synthesis all contained in less than 200 pages is, I guess, befitting of the daunting task which the book sets out to achieve. Uh, as, as Patrick writes at the outset, the task before us is to find a humane and effective political response to the challenge of ecological scarcity. And this is certainly one of the most compelling attempts I've come across to address this huge systemic challenge, which is now truly bearing down on all of us. Uh, we know that species and ecosystems are declining at rates unprecedented in human history. And Patrick argues that we must embrace a politics of ecology, which respects natural scarcity and planetary limits. And Patrick has been arguing this for a long time. He received his PhD in political science from Yale in 1973 and quickly became prominent in the nascent environmental movement of the early 70s. His 1977 book, Ecology and the Politics of Scarcity, won the Sprout Prize from the International Studies Association and the Camera Award from the American Political Science Association, the two most prominent associations in my field of political science and IR. Yet few IR courses today have much to say about ecological scarcity. Nevertheless, Patrick has remained active over the decades in the environmental movement. His ideas continue to influence many prominent thinkers, such as Robin Eckersley and Thomas Homer Dixon, who are also grappling with the implications of ecological crisis for freedom, for our democracies, and for political order. So it's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Patrick. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay. I'll just let the pod crew introduce themselves. Uh, hello, I'm Jessica. I work on the research and social media, and I'm very excited to be part of this conversation today. Hi, everyone. I'm Sam. I handle the video and audio editing, and I too am really looking forward to having a chat with Patrick today. Hi, I'm Zoe. I handle social media as well and a little bit of the research too. All right. So perhaps uh, we can begin, Patrick, by laying out the central arguments 
you said that modern industrial civilization is fundamentally anti-ecological, that it's on a collision course with the laws of ecology. So what are the laws of ecology and how, how are we in violation of them? Uh, I guess the basic law is the, the law of connection. Uh, I like Garrett Hardin's formulation of it, that you can never do just one thing. Everything is connected. So whatever you do with the whole system that we call this uh, earth is going to have consequences. And if you don't respect that, you're going to have bad consequences. And I guess the, the second law would be uh, or a basic ecological principle is limitation. You can only do so much uh, to nature without having consequences. And I like to think of it in terms of uh, capital and income. Uh, we behave like spendthrift heirs. We're using up capital and we're overusing income. And you can just not do that for forever. And we're experiencing the consequences now of violating those very simple basic principles. Now, of course, there are many other ecological laws that apply in one way or another, the law of the minimum. Without phosphorus, you're not gonna have very good crops and so on. But those are the three things that I think are essential for everybody to understand. So, um when we sort of look out on the situation currently with COVID-19, do you see COVID-19 as kind of another canary in the, in the mine shaft, so to speak, another experience that we're going through, which underlying that experience is this kind of violation of planetary boundaries, this kind of intrusion um, by industrial technical civilization? Yeah, it's just one more symptom of the way that we're overusing and abusing the planetary uh, resources. We have simply gotten too big for our ecological britches and uh, we're paying the, paying the price. So I'm also very aware, having now started doing quite a bit of research into biodiversity governance, it, it's been a bit of a surprise how much information, how much knowledge there was in the 60s and 70s. In some respects, the research has been more a process of excavation than innovation. And it's also a bit of a surprise that ecological collapse has really received nowhere near the same amount of attention as climate change. And you were arguing in the 1970s alongside Garrett Hardin, alongside David Orr and other scholars that really the writing was on the wall for Homo Colossus, this kind of addiction to perpetual economic growth. I guess one question would be, well, what happened to that debate in the intervening years? And also, given the resurgence of that debate now in 2021, what do you see as the key differences in how that debate on ecological ecological collapse and accommodation with nature is being framed today? Uh, I'll use the example of Silent Spring, which is one of the very first wake up calls. But the lesson that society in general took from that, oh, we have this discrete problem. We stop using DDT. 
the pelicans no longer die, problem solved. So there was that aspect. Then what happened when the limits to growth came out is it was essentially debunked out of hand. Uh, the computer that cried wolf, garbage in, garbage out. Nobody really paid any attention to the systemic argument that it was trying to make. And, and, and I and some others were also trying to make a similar argument in prose and people just didn't get it. And part of the problem I think uh, is explained by Thomas Kuhn's scientific revolutions. People's attachment to the reigning paradigm is so strong and is such a set of lenses through which people uh, see and interpret reality that you know you can put the obvious fact in front of their nose and it will make no no impact whatsoever. And the fact that even within the scientific disciplines, it's basically no change happens until the old guard dies out and the young Turks take over. Until then, there's no change. So change has to be generational. And I think we are just beginning to reach the point now where more and more people understand we don't have a series of discrete problems that we could somehow serially solve and get our act together. We, we have this massive problematique that has to be solved all at once or not at all. And the solving requires not technical solutions, better mousetraps, it requires a complete revisioning and reconstruction of human society. But that, that understanding is still dawning. It's mainly the younger generation now that Extinction Rebellion, all those kinds of things, but understand at least the gravity of the problem, even if they haven't quite grasped what it is they have to do or what kind of society has to come next. Yeah, I mean, as you write in your very helpful annotated bibliography, I mean, some of the kind of foundational touchstones for this kind of new understanding of reality as networked, as complex, are also rather new. I mean, in many ways, complexity science itself didn't really emerge in any kind of organizational form until the 1970s. So within a Kuhnian paradigm shift kind of view on that, I mean, perhaps it's inevitable that it's going to take decades to make that transition. But of course, the issue is we don't have decades. Exactly. You know, that's one of the problems with limits to growth. Computer models were completely new and nobody really understood them except for a small coterie of scientific researchers. So it's understandable that the society in general was kind of boggled. This can't be right, you know. <laughs> They're saying the sky is falling, go away. You know, that kind of attitude. The amount of intellectual dishonesty around the whole debate. If you look back at it, it's just appalling. There was a recent scientific paper came out maybe two or three years ago, which essentially argued that the limits to growth forecast was was more or less correct. It got almost no attention. The first the puppy sold millions and the rest of them just disappeared. Minor headline on page three of times and that was the end of it so i think sam's got a question over to you sam yeah so patrick hearing you talk about that time in the 70s it seems like there was an understanding that these messages might fall on deaf ears 
is that the case and was there ever a kind of sense that you might be able to merge a political reality with the, the biophysical reality or, or was that something that you always envisioned coming into play at a later date in the future sometime? Yeah, well, that gets uh, to your third question, which uh, were you hopeful in the 1970s that political reality was going to take account of it? And I was never optimistic, uh, in part because I understood things in, in the way that Thomas Kuhn did, that paradigms are so strong. But part of it was so many people told me I was crazy. You know? Or they'd say, well, ecology can't be everything. You know, well, it is everything, you know? <laughs> but but nobody wanted to understand that, or or uh, the amount of resistance of the human mind to a new way of seeing we discover is almost unlimited. It really takes the school of hard knocks to beat it into people's brains that times have changed, and we're just beginning to reach that point where people realize that, oh, they talked about problems that might come down the pike in the future. Well, now they're knocking on the door and threatening to break it down. But still, nobody quite knows how to do it. They think, well, okay, uh, we have a problem with cars, so let's go to electric cars. They don't understand that electric cars aren't the solution. They're more part of the problem. You're just shifting the problem around from one sector to another but you're not fundamentally uh, changing a civilization in a way that will allow it to exist uh, forever ecologically. So do you feel like the, the social challenges that you faced in the 70s trying to get this message across are kind of much the same in the 2020 and, and beyond or have they kind of checked? Obviously the, the problem of you know, ecological collapse has, has increased decade on decade, year on year uh, month on month, but are the social challenges much the same or, or have you found that there has been a shift somewhere? Well, sure, ecological problems and climate change in particular has much more prominence now. And, and uh, uh, the New York Times here in the US or Atlantic Magazine will have good articles about it. But to what extent that changes the larger social and political discussion remains to be seen. We, they talk about, well, climate, uh, Biden is gonna do this, that, and the other for uh, climate change. But uh, I'll believe it when I say it, that, that somebody does something really substantial that, that challenges the larger society and says, we can't go on like this. We need a different way of life. But of course, the problem is that uh, the force of inertia, number one, is so hard to overcome. It's probably the major force in history, inertia. Uh, and the second problem is that the implication is that a lot of, a lot of us are surplus. You know, if you do back of the envelope calculations of what might be a reasonably survivable population on planet Earth, it's down around one or two billion, not seven, eight, nine billion. And, and so that's a pretty hard, hard conclusion for people to swallow. I think we're in for a really serious time of troubles you know, when all these ecological and other political chickens come home to roost. 
become steadily less optimistic over the years as I see how 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 badly and how grudgingly we are we are behaving in face of this massive worldwide crisis. Given in as you're saying that in some ways these are kind of hard truths to swallow, what is the role of the university what is the role of the academic at this moment of ecological peril i mean very notably your 1977 book won these two awards from two very prominent associations in the discipline and yet over 40 years later very prominent scholars like tom hale jessica green uh, are arguing that environmental politics remains marginal to mainstream international relations so how can we understand that? What happened? Yeah, well, what happens is what happens in academe is that it's, it's uh, my book became a textbook in environmental politics. And as stress the word environmental, they were thinking in terms of, uh, oh, not my backyard, all those kinds of uh, petty issues. They weren't thinking about the big picture ecologically in relationship to politics. Uh, it's just what academic disciplines do. Um, I, I got out of academic life because I didn't think it was very rewarding to play academic ping pong. Um, you know, scholars debating among themselves on these very small issues. Um, so that's what happens in academic life. I hope I'm not insulting you, uh, but uh, that's my feeling about uh, how it operates and why after two years I left Northwestern. I, I didn't think I could write the kind of books that I wanted to write in an academic setting. You don't get rewarded for that. You're rewarded for all kinds of other things. Thanks, thanks Patrick. Um, yes, Jessica, you have a question. Yes, um, Patrick, you argue very evocatively that political struggle must now urgently focus on making ecology the master science and Gaia the master metaphor of our age. So many might agree, but argue that it's more practical to focus on reducing pollution, which I believe you mentioned, um, in regards to moving to electrical cars as a solution for um, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, why do you regard this as a fundamental misunderstanding of our predicament? And what would you say to these so-called pragmatists? Yeah, I think I've said, said uh, earlier, the problem isn't better mousetraps or better policies. The, the problem is we need a fundamental restructuring of our basic way of life, which is anti-ecological to its core. Um, and this goes way back in human history we know now, for example, that when uh, human beings migrated out of Africa into new areas, it didn't take too long uh, before they had exterminated most of the megafauna, after which they evolved ways of living in, reasonably, in a reasonably ecological fashion. But we have simply replicated that um, on a massive global scale. Um, and until we, until we understand that root reality, we will just be what we Americans call a day late and a dollar short in our response. We will, 
we will give ground grudgingly. We will make policies that reduce our carbon footprint a little bit, but we won't fundamentally reform our society. I think that's our, our, our basic situation. I keep coming back to it. And I've had that view all along since I, I first encountered uh, ecology. By the way, I should probably tell you the backstory to, um, to my work. Uh, I was a diplomat before I went back to school uh, to get a uh, doctorate. And I was in Tokyo. Uh, my embassy apartment was a quarter mile away from a large TV tower painted international orange. Most days of the year, I couldn't see it from our apartment. Uh, on the one day of the year when nobody drives in Tokyo, which is New Year Day, you could see Mount Fuji 50 miles away. Then I went frequently back and forth between Tokyo and Yokohama. And uh, there's a river that runs halfway through. On Monday, it would be red. On Tuesday, it would be purple. On Thursday, it would be yellow. So on, depending on who was doing the worst polluting. Then it finally came time for me to leave Tokyo. And the embassy sent me out to the Air Force Hospital to have my lungs tested because it turned out that too many people had been coming back from three, four years in Tokyo with lung damage. So that's what I brought back when I started graduate studies at, at uh, Yale. I was originally going to be a specialist in Japanese politics or Far Eastern diplomacy, but that just kept eating away at me. I could just see Oh, industrial civilization is not what it's cracked up to be. Well, and that became the kernel around which all of my work essentially uh, grew. So, sir, how would you say that we should dismantle our industrial society and what would, what would an ecologically focused um, society look like? You're, you're asking the $64,000 question to which I don't really have an answer because uh, we've gone so far down the pike of uh, exploitation that, that uh, as, as one uh, historian put it, uh, as, as we climbed the ladder of, product, uh, of progress, we kicked out the rungs behind us. We have no, no easy or graceful way to climb down from the perch we're, we're on right now. And, and so you could say, yeah, electric cars are better than fossil fuel cars, depending on where you get your electricity. Um, and you can think of various other um, so-called solutions like that, but, but they don't answer the real problem is that, that there are just too many of us now on the globe to allow us to build a sustainable society. Do you think some kind of model of rationing, I mean, is, is, are there models we can look to, say, the situation after the Second World War in Britain, where there was quite strict rationing, or in Cuba after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Um, you know, is, is that the sort of the, the drawdown model that you might have in mind? Yeah, exactly. Once things get so bad, then there may be some possibility 
for uh, government to, to take action, but we'll have to reach some kind of extremity. What, what I think is more likely is that uh, ecological scarcity will be uh, like a boa constrictor. It will, it will wrap itself around us and slowly squeeze us. Um, uh, life in Louisiana and Texas will become unbearable when the temperature is too high. Um, you can until there's a certain crisis point that allows the government to step in and do exactly what you said, to, to really have a realistic plan for rationing scarcity and making a transition to a, a new and different kind of uh, environment and uh, economy. It's certainly a very evocative image you you give there the boa constrictor slowly, slowly can yeah slowly squeezing us in this situation. Mm. Um, so I know Zoe has a question. Over to you, Zoe. So some argue that one problem the West faces is that our our ideas about the future are no longer relevant, um, and we increasingly see wisdom being sought from non-Western indigenous and spiritual traditions such as Buddhism. But in, uh, in Plato's Revenge, you very much situate your response to the ecological crisis within Western philosophical thought. Um, in your opinion, which Western ideas can and must be salvaged um, and which should we let go of and leave behind us as we plot a path into the future? Sure. Actually, in Plato's Revenge, I do at certain points uh, reference Eastern thought, Taoism, uh, Confucianism, Buddhism. Um, but yeah, I thought partly as a tactical matter, I thought to use primarily uh, Western sources. And when you say the Western tradition, it's so various. We have people like Thoreau, we have people like Rousseau, we have people like Hobbes, we have uh, all kinds of things. So. So I tried to find within our own tradition voices that spoke to a more ecological worldview. But uh, I am uh, personally a practicing Buddhist. And, and so uh, although I didn't come to Buddhism until later in life, certainly my four years in Japan being immersed in that society had uh, an impact on my way of, way of thinking. Um, and and I do think that in many ways, uh, we have the resources within the Western tradition going back to Plato. If you read Plato aright, which a lot of people don't, unfortunately, they take mainly the, the rationalist side of Plato. Uh, and my contention is that he's, he has more in common with, uh, with Gautama Buddha than, than with Karl Marx. Uh, so, so there are resources there, but I think we have to, to expand our worldview to include all these other systems of thought uh, as well. And I, I believe Buddhism is a very central resource for understanding that uh, a civilization based on desire is going nowhere and that everything is connected and that we have to behave accordingly. You also weave in influences by, you know, from people such as Gregory Bateson, who sure. is 
very prominent in the ecological field, in cybernetics, but these names probably aren't familiar to a lot of people who are listening. Um, you know, again, it's it's curious the kind of the just just how active and alive the debates were in the 1960s and 70s and how they seem to have been diminished, how we're not really asking those questions in the mainstream, at least. Yes, I, I agree with you. It, it, it does surprise me a bit that there was so little continuity of thought. Uh, and I guess because we were becoming so, quote unquote, successful in, in terms of economic growth and everybody was, uh, the, the, the flood tide was lifting all boats and then the end of the Cold War and the triumphalism and uh, so on. So all of those things just kind of brushed aside uh, or in the case of system science, they retreated into to the academic sphere and didn't have much impact on, on life outside that. Um, yeah. Why, why didn't we take Gregory Bateson seriously? Why didn't we take the limits to growth seriously? Again, I think it comes back to, to uh, Kuhn and, and how, how strongly people resist any kind of paradigm. I mean, you really take aim at the, at the kind of Newtonian mechanistic worldview and you counterpose that to ecology as a alternative master science guy as the alternative master metaphor yeah. and then you weave a very compelling story drawing on western philosophy from plato on including the founding fathers jefferson and others yeah. uh, and i have to admit that uh, that is not a story i'm familiar with uh -huh. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was very it was quite revelatory how eco the ecological ecological sensibility that is hidden within Jefferson's own political thought. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, that was the was not the dominant strain. Um, we talk sometimes in American intellectual history about the machine and the garden. And, and it was uh, Hamilton who was for the machine and essentially the majority of the uh, uh, the founding people in the Americas, but that garden theme was always there underlying it. Uh, so I think in any culture, there's always a counterculture that has ideas that are opposite and that, that can become relevant when the time is, uh, is right. Uh, I'll change the subject a little bit here to say, that the physicists themselves uh, have resources um, that I think are useful for our understanding. If you look at what the physicists say about our world, it's more like Buddhism than it is your usual understanding of cut and dried science. Um, I also think so far you haven't mentioned Jung. And, uh, and I think in some ways that chapter is, is in many ways a key one in my argument um, and shouldn't be overlooked. Well, perhaps Patrick, you could actually, uh, a couple of points of just clarification and expansion. I mean, one, I would love for you to explain a bit more, what is it that people get wrong about 
Plato here, which is so important to the thrust of your argument? Well, okay. If, if you look at how Plato is taught in the academy, uh, they go to, uh, uh, yeah, they mention the cave, which is a very Buddhist uh, uh, metaphor for sure. Uh, but then they focus on his, plan, his ideal plan for the city and the guardians and this, that, and the other. They don't realize that, it, that this is a thought experiment that he's been building up only to tear down with everything that he says later, and particularly later, later in the book. So the reading of Plato is, to my way of thinking, extremely simplistic um, and, and doesn't, doesn't understand that such a different way of thinking and of arguing lies behind it that to interpret it in our sort of modern, straightforward way uh, is absurd. Uh, but I'm not a Plato expert and, uh, and so on. All I remember is being taught Plato in the academy and, and later realizing that it was baloney. It was, no. And let's let's turn to Jung. So, you know, many people will look to Buddhism as and, and Hinduism as sort of in a way a subjective empiricist approach to understanding the mind, to understanding psychology that goes back millennia, whereas in the West, the focus has been less on the kind of understanding the interiority of human experience. And in many ways, of obviously, psychology as a discipline, as a field is very new by comparison. We go back to Freud at the turn of the, of the, the 20th century, 19th century, and of course, Jung and, and, and others who followed after them. Um, so this, this, this concept of individuation that Jung is so famous for, why is that so important in, in your argument as to, well, what might be the exit here from the, the trap of perpetual growth and the culture that perpetuates that? Um, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but, but individuation doesn't separate you doesn't make you apart from others, it makes you join others. So you join your community and the community in the largest sense. It makes you more aware of, not just of your individual uh, self, but of your connection to the whole of being, basically. So if you understand it in that way, again, a very Buddhist understanding, but approached from a very different direction, we are all connected. We're all connected ecologically. We're all connected psychically in many ways to a, such a great extent that, uh, that uh, if we don't act on that understanding, we are acting against our, 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 best, uh, our best nature uh, individually and collectively. Yes, it, it does seem that Jung really understood that. Of course, Jung is quite a controversial figure in contemporary psychology. Uh, yes. Some regard him as a, a mystic, you know, someone who dabbled in sort of Gnosticism. Um, I, 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 I gather that perhaps you, you regard that as not, not a bad thing. Well, I, I regard that not as a bad thing. The, the way he did it, he was looking for 
for clues to the deep nature of the psyche wherever he could find them. Uh, and it's one of the things I really like and admire about him is that he was so eclectic and all, all embracing. Unlike Freud, who was kind of, you know, we run down these tracks and we stay on them and anything to the side we forget about. Uh, I'll, I'll do credit to, to Freud for, um, for what he did, although he acknowledged I, I'm, I'm following the path of the ancient poets. They were just rediscovering what, what, in a way, the Greeks already knew about the archetypes, but couldn't articulate in, in the same way. I think Carl Rogers, a psych, the psychotherapist, said once that um, the most personal is the most universal. Uh -huh. And it's, it's very interesting when you read, say, Carl Jung's The Red Book, and which is, again, a very controversial work, but uh, essentially, uh, through whatever process he went through writing that book, he also came, all of these visualizations are there on the page, including many mandalas, which of course yeah. is the universal symbol of, of, of um, unity in, in the Buddhist tradition and in other cultures, which is quite yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask, Patrick, I mean, what would you, what would you say to people who are your age about the situation that we find ourselves in now and and what that we and what we might do and also perhaps people who are more my generation the kinds of you know 40 to 50 year olds and then finally the younger generation the generation z the millennials what 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 message might you have for each of those three cohorts? Well, well, for myself or my generation, I mean, we're not going to be around uh, long enough to see the worst happen in all likelihood. So uh, I don't have much, much advice for them. The people in the middle, I would just say you have to prepare yourselves to live in a very different world. Um, I don't know what that means concretely, um, but things are going to change. Uh, and I expect quite radically, uh, perhaps in, the, in this decade. So be ready for it. And to my, the really young, young generation, my grandchildren who are now, 1314, I'd say you need to prepare yourself for an utterly different environment and way of life in which your mental fortitude and physical prowess uh, are going to be essential. That you better prepare yourself for a time of troubles that will test everybody and test you for sure. Don't think of the typical kind of career path that people have followed uh, for the last several generations. It just isn't going to work anymore. Yes, I think a lot of people in our generation have been grappling with uh, the future and, and how, you know, what our parents have done with their lives isn't necessarily going to be available to us. Those options aren't going to be presented in the same way. 
I, we spoke a few months ago to Farhana Yaman, who worked on the Paris Agreement. And uh, we talked about how a, a lot of young people uh, just kind of want to live off the grid and live alone and, and really go back to the roots and reconnect with nature. Is that the answer? Is the answer for us to, to retreat into smaller communities that are um, food secure in and of themselves? And what, what, is that an option? Do you think, what are your perspectives on that way of life? Yeah, I remember back to the whole earth catalog and the back to the land movement and, and how that fizzled out. Um, I think some people have had success in going that route. That's, that's not a solution for society as a whole. It may be a solution for uh, individuals or small groups. Uh, my, my vision of the ultimate future, if we come out the other side of this, is that we'll go back to some kind of agrarian society with all that that, that implies. Um, that, that we will have to find some way of living off the land sustainably. Um, and that will, that will require us basically to go back to smallhold farming, I think. But that's in the very long term. Patrick, it's, it's interesting because we've talked about Jefferson and we've talked about kind of Jeffersonian agrarianism, but there's also the idea of the agrarian myth and how the kind of to have a patch of land may have led to a kind of consumerism or a white picket fence. I need to a, a, an ownership. And has there been a kind of distortion of the agrarian ideal? And where did that go wrong? And, and, and if we move into the future towards something like that? How can we prevent that from happening again? Don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, what I would see is, is more um, emphasis on holding things in common. If we could make that a central principle, that may be the way to avoid having people all go off in their own individual uh, direction, as you say, the white picket fence. Uh, my property is mine. It's not yours. You, everybody holds holds this life in entail for future generations. Uh, and and once that becomes a dominant principle, that that you're always considering the interests of the grandchildren, the great grandchildren, and, and how you live your life, then I think other things will follow almost automatically. You wouldn't do certain things if, if that's the way you thought. And, and just a quick follow-up on, on that one. Uh, we talked about options for you know, young people going forward. And I think there's an inevitable socialization, you know, that, that you can be very kind of in inverted commas woke when you're at university. And then there's the inevitable finding of a job and the inevitable movement towards the the kind of systemic ways that we've perpetuated the situation we're in. Um, do you think there's a kind of a, a middle ground, a kind of, uh, you have your, your conventional job by day and by night, metaphorically, you're, you're working in a much more profound and meaningful way. I'm reminded of the, the Frieger Haug four in one manifesto, uh, where, it, you know, with less working hours, you have an almost equal amount of time to commit to some kind of community project or 
uh, an environmental project, for example? Do you, do you see that as a, as a kind of palatable middle ground or, or have we moved beyond that point of palatable middle grounds uh, and, and we just need to swallow the hard pills? Yeah, I'm not so sure there is a palatable uh, middle ground. What I, I think there's an old spiritual maxim uh, that, that you, you pay your dues to society, but you don't give your soul to it. You live in society, but you're not of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm reminded of the, you know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, you know, to, to borrow another kind of belief system, uh, you know, pay dues to society and then, uh, you know, move on out from there. Um, no, yeah. Thank you for that, Patrick. Yeah, I mean, we, we're, we're born into a certain society and there's no escaping that. So, so you have to do what that society demands you to do to get through life. But you don't, you don't have to sell yourself to it. And then with your, you spend your life in a way that, that makes you happy and uh, fulfilled as best you can within the circumstances that surround you. I mean, here I am, I live in Los Angeles. Uh, I have to drive a car. I mean, what would the alternative be? Yeah, I could use Uber. I'd still be using cars and you know, it would cost a lot of money. Um, I'm here with my grandkids, but but I try to I try to be outside that as much as possible in the way I think and approach life, and in the way I I help to raise my grandchildren. I wish I could be more optimistic uh, and and positive and think, well, there's a there's a way out of this. There there really isn't a way out of this in the conventional sense. We will get through it, but the price will be high for many, many people. So, so what um, what role does hope have then in that kind of context? How, how do we understand hope for the future in the situation that we find ourselves in now? Let's see. I wrote a poem about it, but it's not handy, unfortunately, so I, I can't read it to you. But the basic idea was, okay, we will reduce the world to plastics and palm scum. But from, from that slurry of plastic and palm scum will arise new forms of life. I have that kind of long range feeling that, that life is greater than any of us. I'm not worried about the planet. We're, we're ephemeral and disposable. The, the planet, the life of the planet will go on. So that's my hope, yes. So cultivating a, a bit of a cosmic sensibility, exactly. just how mysterious it all really is. Yeah, and, Perhaps finding and, some, yeah, some comfort in that. Yeah, and a, a Buddhist sense of detachment. This is, you know, this is all a, a play of life, and and you live so many lives within it that, that getting overly concerned or attached to one particular thing just isn't isn't worth it in the, the larger context. 
Well, I think that's a really a very good note to end on. Um, thank you so much for your time, Patrick, and for all of your work, which uh, I've really enjoyed reading and I would highly recommend. Um, so, uh, yes, thanks so much again for joining us. Well, thank you for having me and uh, the best to all of you. Thanks for tuning into Imperfect Utopias. To get access to all of our content and to stay up to date with future Zoom calls, workshops and events and more, check us out at ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. If you like this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. Till next time.